Welcome to The Examining Life, a podcast of the Arts of Liberty Project at the University of Dallas with Dr. Jeffrey Lehman, founder, and Dr. Andrew Seeley, executive director. Join the doctors each week as they draw on decades of devotion to liberal education to help you engage in a life of learning. All right, welcome to this edition of The Examining Life podcast. I'm Dr. Andrew Seeley. And Jeff Lehman. And uh, we're here to uh, share from our experiences of uh, leading life, I guess, involved, heavily involved in the life of learning um, in many different ways. Um, and we're settling into a format. We're really enjoying it. Uh, reading some short texts, um, excerpts from great works, usually. Last time we talked about the School of Athens, um, and then having some discussion. And then after that, just sharing whatever's on our mind. Um, we want to let you know that you can find the, uh, the full texts that we're working with, um, the full excerpts anyway, on our Arts of Liberty site, artsofliberty.udallas.edu slash podcasts, um, along with other resources. You know, any of the resources we mentioned, we're trying to put those up on the site there. Um, and uh, also you can uh, send us your comments at artsofliberty.udallas.edu. Um, and requests for texts we might look at in the future or topics. Um, and you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. So uh, today we're going to be talking about Dorothy Sayers' Lost Tools of Learning. And this is not a great text, and she's not among the great authors. I'm sure she wouldn't uh, mind my saying that. Right. <laughs> um, but this text has a rem- had a remarkable impact on the revival of um, classical learning and liberal arts education in the United States. In fact, I think I feel that we would not be anywhere near where we are in terms of this revival if it hadn't been for this particular uh, talk that she gave at the University of Oxford in the 40s. So we're going to start with a very um, uh, powerful excerpt from this. If you'd like to read that, Dr. Yes, I would be happy to do that. For we let our young men and women go out unarmed in a day when armor was never so necessary. By teaching them all to read... We have left them at the mercy of the printed word. By the invention of the film and the radio, we have made certain that no aversion to reading shall secure them from the incessant battery of words, words, words. They do not know what the words mean. They do not know how to ward them off or blunt their edge or fling them back. They are a prey to words in their emotions instead of being the masters of them in their intellects. We who were scandalized in 1940 when men were sent to fight armored tanks with rifles are not scandalized when young men and women are sent into the world to fight mass propaganda with a smattering of subjects. And when whole classes and whole nations become hypnotized by the arts of the spellbinder, we have the impudence to be astonished. You want to start with a few thoughts about that? Well, it's 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 interesting. Uh, Dorothy Sayers could have written this yesterday. And it, <laughs> <laughs> yes. it wouldn't be any more. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's timely to in our own day. Uh, I'm struck by the way she begins uh, sending out our young men and women unarmed in a day when armor was never so necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, of course, much was going on in her own time, but the media and the access to words and, and, and images uh, has just become uh, overwhelming. Overwhelming. And yeah. it's, it's very easy to slip and fall, to lose your direction and, and your bearings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, and, and, and thinking about it as a kind of armor, 
right? A, a way of uh, defending and in, in the proper sense, taking an offensive posture uh, so that we can really stand for the truth. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's crucial. Yeah. Um, and this was, I think, 1947. So this is just two years after the end of the war. And so the bringing up not only the armor and the, and the, the warfare there, but the, um, the fact that whole classes and whole nations became hypnotized by the arts of the spellbinder. Um, the, we, I think we vastly underestimate even today, the power of not only the written word, but the spoken word. Um, it's, it's, uh, those who have control of it, either through, through training or through, uh, instinct, um, can work on the emotions and imaginations of a large number of people and and sway them to passionate and thoughtless action um, and and they had just lived through a war that she's kind of saying the roots of this war and the power of this war were and the destructive force began in the power of the spoken word that's right that's right and this seems to be a perennial problem, a perennial battle that needs to be waged. When we think back to Plato, uh, and, and I'd like us to maybe bracket the, the historicity of his depiction of the sophists, right? Because mm -hmm. one could argue, were they really like that? Yeah, right. or was that... But we've certainly had sophists among us uh, at all times, at least the way Plato describes. And that's a weaver of words who uses those words to overpower another mm -hmm. in one way or more than one way. Uh, so, so he was at odds with the sophist of his time when Augustine was writing, uh, the prevailing rhetoric, uh, has been called by scholarship, the second sophistic, right? Mm -hmm. So it's very common to have that sophistic kind of way of approaching things and, uh, sophism and, and sophistry are certainly alive today. Uh, so it, it seems to me that one of the greatest things that we can do in contributing to, uh, to classical education and the liberal arts and liberal education today is to, um, help our students use words well, mm -hmm. employ them for a higher end and not mm -hmm. just simply to manipulate or get the upper hand. Right. I think yeah. that um, this is uh, mentioned at the end of last episode, I think that um, as parents and educators see problems with what uh, with what the establishment is saying, the, how what education should be oriented to, they need to have something really positive to turn to. They have this great opportunity. I think that they really, it's really crucial that we look beyond the career orientation, the vocational orientation that is so dominated um, American education for uh, 40 years or so, uh, maybe longer. And, and then it's even more corrupted into just a test-oriented yes. <laughs> education. We have to see how important it is to educate our our young in in works that are richly powerful with the word and and with with the thought um and then they need we need to have that be a regular they're immersed in it so that when they are set into the adult world they're not going to be prey to words they're going to be hopefully moving towards mastery of words and so able to lead others in the right direction. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And it, it seems that uh, we can remind ourselves of where we've been in, in previous episodes of the podcast. 
the, the distinct nature of a human being being rational and and words are part and parcel of our rationality right when we use words and we use them well uh, we're using them in pursuit of the truth and in pursuit of bringing about a unity uh, among you know the members of our family our, our larger community whomever it is we come in contact with are we are we coming together by means of words uh, in a united pursuit of the truth uh, and of the good life, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, and so that's used words, excuse me, words used well, <laughs> yeah. as, a, as opposed to having yeah. words be be mm -hmm. simply instruments for, for ulterior motives. Mm -hmm. um, and then another thing that's really important here is that is that if words that express what we really think and believe are not, um, are not the leading element in our in our actions and choices, it's going to be the emotions. And the emotions um, set loose um, are both, both lead us to disaster mm -hmm. <laughs> in many ways, sort of personally, but then also um, just the, they can, they can ramp up when the more people who are gathered together, sharing the same emotions, the more they feed off one another and the more um, unpredictable, that situation becomes yeah and what you're describing uh again couldn't be more timely just the last couple of years uh and the, the experiences we've had in america and throughout the world uh people have become very much uh, uh prey to their own emotions and uh not not as open to rational discourse thinking things through using words to control those emotions mm -hmm. it seems to me and then you also mentioned um, that something that she wasn't dealing with in 1947 is the images. The um, now the it's not just the words, but the power of the image is uh, uh, to shape and incite is something we live with con continually. Um, what what do you think about that about the 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 image the focus on the or the force of the image? Yes, yeah. It seems to me that today we want to put word and image in a way uh, alongside one another, and, and clearly the word is closer to our rationality. But we need to remind ourselves that our knowledge begins in the senses, and that we have images uh, that we receive from our experience of the natural world. But in our own day, uh, we're bombarded by artificial images. Mm -hmm. uh, and that should remind us of uh, the cave in the middle of Plato's Republic. Uh, that too is something that, that he saw and was aware of. Images can be used well or poorly, mm -hmm. right? So is this image leading you toward the truth or is it taking you farther away from it? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and how would we know the difference? How would that involve itself in effective teaching and learning? Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. And, and of course, we've now also um, engaged the power of science and the methodical study of, of how to make those images uh, have the greatest impact. Um, that has been the uh, object of intense research. So we, um, we really need to, I guess that just uh, emphasize how much more what Dorothy Sayers was calling for uh, is necessary in our times. Um, let me uh, bring up the portion just before the text that we started with in her essay, The Lost Tools of Learning. Scorn and plenty has been poured out upon the medieval passion for hair splitting. 
But when we look at the shameless abuse made and printed on the platform of controversial expressions with shifting and ambiguous connotations, we may feel it in our hearts to wish that every reader and hearer had been so defensively armored by his education as to be able to cry, distinguo. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that, that, um, that one of the images that we have to deal with is the negative image of of the, um, I guess the hair splitter, the mm -hmm. the the egghead, um, <laughs> who's uh, always um, seems to be just living in a world of abstraction. Right. But um, uh, Sayers is is countering that image, or at least saying that we should start to long to really learn how important and respectable mm -hmm. <laughs> being able to make distinctions and insisting right. on distinctions in meaning really is. I agree. And it seems to me that, uh, you know, the charge of hair splitting, I think is true in every age. Uh, mm. We will always have hair splitters among us. <laughs> yeah. But I don't think that the greatest of the medieval minds are, are guilty of hair splitting. Mm. Uh, the distinctions that they make are always based upon reality, right? So they're looking to reality and they're asking what distinction needs to be made so that I can understand it more fully. Mm -hmm. I seem to be slipping a little bit. Mm -hmm. When I leave these things bound together, I'm not seeing them as clearly as I should be. But when I make that distinction, then they're clear. Yeah. Right? Does anyone, an example of that come to mind? Well, Thomas Aquinas okay. uh, is, right. uh, I think he's uh, kind of an exemplar of, of the, an excellent use of distinction. Yeah. Can I just, um, a little side note there, yes. um, which is that the Summa Theologiae is a fantastic um, presentation of, of kind of the, the level of distinction and objection that's appropriate to the, the normal learner and in the normal stage. And um, I think you're saying he's a, he's a master of, of, of whittling down the 17 or 22 objections that he, that come up in his disputed questions to, these are the three that will really set your mind in the right orientation to think about this question. So, yes. Yeah, that seems right to me. And uh, one of the, I, I've been reading some, some comments of scholars and, and readers of, of Aquinas. And one of the things that I've seen several of them point out recently is that Thomas seems to have found that ideal uh, quantity and nature of distinction that enables him to teach well, mm -hmm. right? And so there were distinctions aplenty, and, and some authors would make distinctions uh, upon distinctions upon distinctions as if there's a love of just mm -hmm. distinguishing for its own yeah. sake. Think, you don't get that in, in Thomas, though. It, it seems like when you, when you think about it, the distinction is always with a purpose, and it's always enlightening. Mm -hmm. And it always meets the student where he or she is. Yeah. So, so I was asking for an example. Did you have one in particular? You're just thinking about Thomas Aquinas generally as an example. Of oh, that. I'm just thinking like, about, about yeah. him generally yeah. as an example. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I just think that reminded me of uh, in the Protagoras and uh, among the the three major sophist figures who are there. Prodicus is the, mm -hmm. is the word, the word master. And yes. um, he's even held up for kind of mockery with how uh, he thinks uh, uh, a, a subtle distinction in the use of words will solve every difficulty, right? Yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> but then, um, but at the same time, Socrates is seriously trying to get uh, uh, Protagoras to make distinctions about what he means by virtue and whether they're one or many. And then, then in the focus on courage, 
what exactly are you thinking about courage? And he, he um, so he's pressing distinctions. He just doesn't think that they're always just in the words on, on the word level. That's yeah. right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And kind of on the other side, also from Plato is uh, the point in the, in the Mino where they're talking about virtue and, and Mino is doing his level best to come up with a definition of virtue that's suitable to Socrates. And, and one of the iterations is justice is virtue. And Socrates' response is, is justice virtue or is justice a virtue, right? Mm -hmm. right? And so he's making a distinction that helps Mino see a little bit more uh, of, of how to come to a proper mm -hmm. definition. Yeah. yeah. So um, Dorothy Sayers went, goes on in this essay to recommend a return to the trivium, the, the, the threefold study of language and its power um, in grammar, logic, and rhetoric. She adapts it in a way that I think has some strengths and some weaknesses, but um, right. uh, I think that there uh, it has been a guide. That's that's the amazing thing. It's this short talk she gave uh, at the University of Oxford, um, where she says in, at the beginning of the talk, "Now I'm going to propose a reform. Nobody's going to take me seriously," mm -hmm. um, and she was right. Nobody took her seriously until um, in the late '70s, the National Review started reprinting this essay. And in the 80s, when parents were, were re feeling like they could no longer entrust their children to the educational establishment um, and had to do it on their own, uh, many of them found in this essay a guide um, yes. to get started mm -hmm. and to give them direction on something positive. And the more that they worked um, under her sort of general guidelines, the more they found that this that they they sort of celebrated <laughs> they were they were so happy for what they were able to give to their kids um, that wasn't just protecting them from the bad but was actually presenting them with so much more in, in uh, so much more of a positive education than they had received themselves that's that's right and I, i'm i'm thinking of uh the foundational nature of the trivium I, there, there there are things that could be said about the essay as you alluded to earlier that uh we could we could criticize in certain ways. Uh, the comments that are made about the trivium seem to have uh, maybe led to a false start in that mm. regard. Uh, and we're just now appropriating the quadrivium today. Uh, but setting that aside, the trivium is first in itself, mm -hmm. right? You, you would study the trivium historically, you would study the trivium first, and those were the arts of the word in mm. its various forms, grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And they're foundational. And when you look at, at representations of them, images of mm. them in the tradition, what you often find is that at the very beginning of education, there's grammar. And perhaps there's a door oftentimes where mm. grammar is the door to all of the higher things and then logic and then rhetoric. And that puts you in a position where you can engage any and every sort of study uh, mm -hmm. from the level of word and then proceed from there. Mm -hmm. So I, I think she's done a great service and we're much in her debt in terms of how mm -hmm. she has, uh, you know, unbeknownst to her, <laughs> uh, sparked a movement uh, that has uh, grown into to quite a, uh, an established thing in the United States, at least. And, yes. beyond. and, and I want to pick up on the United States things because this is um, the the history and being involved in some of the development that's happened over the last three decades um, has made me very proud to be an American. Um, yes. <laughs> I think that, uh, uh, among other things, Americans have still a um, uh, an ethos of freedom mm -hmm. where 
we don't we mean we, we we want to work together cooperatively through institutions to bring about good things but if it's not happening there we will take on the initiative ourselves and the responsibility to do the good thing for those things we those we love and and the things we care about um and that uh, that is um born immense fruit in the first first uh, first um the first entry into this mm -hmm. experimenting doing what what could grow you know groping for exactly. materials seeing what worked what didn't and then others started to look to people who are having some success mm -hmm. the experience is shared through the um through modern abilities to travel and the and right. the the means of communication that experience gets distilled and into a second generation and a second start at things um and uh, growing in i think comprehensiveness and and a comprehensiveness of vision and of um, ability and then an intensity of ability to share that so i think that's been an amazing thing to be a part of to pick up one element of what you're saying and and to maybe push it a little farther um, we could think that this movement part of what's happened over time is it's become ecumenical in a broad sense that is that uh not not in the sense of uniting different elements within the church but just uniting different people regardless of their religious affiliation or lack thereof uh, to see that this pursuit of the truth by means of the liberal arts is uh, it's foundational to their humanity. And so one of the beautiful things that's happened over the last few decades is just seeing how very different people with very different commitments are brought together. And over time, it seems to me that we're seeing the possibilities uh, become actualized of this movement. Mm. What, what happens when you know this group over here has one part of it, and this group over here has, and they start in dialogue with one right. another, and, right. and then one thing builds mm -hmm. upon another, mm -hmm. uh, and it's it's beautiful. It's beautiful yeah. to be a part of. And then you have, I think, also um, variations that yes. that there's disagreements often in that conversation, right. but then different uh, the different sides are different. Uh, yeah, I guess the people in dialogue mm -hmm. pursue different iterations of it. And um, frequently, the different ones are all, all beautiful in their own way and right. um, speak to uh, different different people. And so we're able to grow it according to charism in a way, right? Yes, yeah, yes, which is, no, which definitely. Is fantastic. I think that's right. Um, okay, and then I guess one, one last thing I want to say is also we have um, a history of private philanthropy in the United States, a, a spirit of that, mm -hmm. so that when um, uh, when we exercise our freedom, mm -hmm. we are able to do that outside of the funded structures, the tax-funded structures. Right. Um, that's a really precious gift that we have as Americans. It, isn't found all over the world. It is not. Yeah. Yes. In fact, I mean, one of the things that we're looking at as as the, the movement grows and it, it spreads and there's interest in other countries is the lack of that philanthropic presence mm -hmm. has made it much more challenging. Much more challenging. Right. Yeah. And so so yes, efforts are being made in South America and different places in Europe and, and around the world. Uh, but but the going is slower. Uh, mm -hmm. precisely because of what at least one of the main reasons is because there isn't that philanthropic spirit that yeah. sense that you know we're going to pitch in together and and make this a reality mm -hmm. yeah great um so i enjoyed this discussion uh the full essay will be available 
on our website. And so you can find it there as artsofliberty.udallas.edu slash podcasts. Um, and now we want to just talk a little bit about other things on our mind. Though I'm going to start with Please. something that's very connected, I think, um, which is uh, a recent article that came out called The Left Should Defend Classical Education by Lisa F Liza Featherstone. Um, and uh, she is a person on the left. And I'm going to uh, read a little bit from her article here. Today, the idea of a Western canon has some fascistic appeal to the far-right desktop warriors defending white civilization from the global majority. Contemporary conservatives see classical education as a counter to critical race theory, a nebulously defined bugbear of the right, and a dog whistle to racist voters. Now, first thing, of course, in thinking about Dorothy Sayers is the way in which um, words are being, uh, are forming images that just cause emotional reactions that um, that completely cloud, they, that are just in danger of completely clouding yes. any serious thought about the issue that she's bringing up. It's, um, it's definitely language that's ordered to arousing an emotional or drawing an emotional condemnation of other people, of other serious people who live in the same society with her. So it, I think it's an example of the kind of danger that Dorothy Sayers is talking about. But I also think it's important for, for those of us who don't share, who aren't on the left, to say, well, why does she have this image and why are they, why are they, why is this image so powerful? It, to what extent are we guilty of some of this? Or is this, is the um, trying to co-opt a liberal ed education for the sake of simply a, a different political agenda? We have to be careful of that ourselves, I think. And this is this is a warning I think we should take from something like this. Yeah. As you were reading, I couldn't help but want to say distinguo. Distinguo. <laughs> right. <laughs> in, in the spirit of Dorothy Sayers. Because, yeah. uh, yes, I mean, there's truth there, but but it's mixed in with all kinds of other things. And that's probably a podcast in itself, just right. to try yeah. to get that all unraveled. But uh, to the last point that you were making, uh, that seems right to me, a, a constant danger among, uh, you know, conservatives uh, is uh, to instrumentalize this educational tradition, to see the liberal arts and liberal education as something that's for the sake of a political agenda mm -hmm. or some other agenda. And uh, that's that's not what that tradition is all about. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's, it's precisely to free us <laughs> from those instrumental ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, she goes on to say, in any case, it's anti-intellectual to reject dead white men we would miss out on thousands of years of literature and philosophy and thus centuries of truth-seeking and inquiry. And there, I, I think that to the extent that all of us see that, that we have this uh, rich Western tradition of literature and philosophy that we want to draw upon, but that it's ordered to truth-seeking. If we can all agree that that's what we're trying to do is seek truth and then as uh, you added goodness and beauty, that's what we're all after. That's what we want to find. That can, um, that can help us to start having a meeting ground yes. where we can at least find out what our real disagreements are and be able to respect the integrity of those who are also engaged in, in truth seeking. 
Yeah, that's that's right. And it brings to mind something that uh, that I've been thinking about uh, because I've done a lot of work with philosophical dialogues in the Western tradition and and uh, especially Plato, but others as well. And uh, one of the things that I've noted uh, is in different uh, individuals have, have seen this, too, is that philosophical dialogue kind of dies out in the Western tradition. Um, and it dies out at a time when, among other things, uh, the belief that we can have con confidence that through dialogue we can come to know the truth, when, when that starts to erode and when that is passing away, it's not hard to see why writing philosophical dialogues and engaging in this kind of back and forth could be perceived as fruitless or mm -hmm. maybe even harmful, yeah. Yeah. right? And so uh, I think that's one of the keys to moving forward is, yes, truth can be known, right? Yes, in part, with all the qualifications, but mm -hmm. we can make headway, yeah. right? We can move forward. Yeah, and this yeah. is a perfect setup for our next podcast. We're going to be looking at selections from the Mino where this very question of the possibility of truth-seeking is raised. So we hope we'll, you'll join us for that. And um, we're, we welcome comments and, and criticisms and questions of any kind. Uh, send them to artsofliberty at udallas.edu. Thank you. Till next time. <laughs> Resources mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at artsofliberty.udallas.edu slash podcasts. We invite you to share questions, comments, requests, and challenges via our email address, artsofliberty at udallas.edu. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. These podcasts are made possible by funding from generous benefactors like you.